Hi, this is Jean Nathan. It is Crosstown Conversations. And um, we, as always, have some very interesting and informative guests. Um, so I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, some of them are fun and some of them have just really important information to share. We've done about, I don't know, close to 3,000 interviews now over the years. And I think um, people tend to appreciate the, the information they're getting from us. So here goes for today. Um, so Timberland, Sams, I have known you since Katrina. Yes, we you have. Baptized. Well, post-Katrina, not Katrina, but post- Well, yeah, post-Katrina, but uh, essentially I, I, I talk about Katrina as the pre and the storm and the post, they're all part of the same, you know, okay, I got you. I got you. rugged cycle that we've been through. And I, I, I think that I would, I'm fair in saying that I'll bet we both thought that was maybe the worst thing we were going to go through in life. Mm, yeah, I think, right. I think that I would agree. I actually will agree with that. And that was before COVID, which is nasty, uh, but full of revelations that are really important. Mm -hmm. And um, all of the social protest, which is not so much full of revelations, but well, to some people, it's definitely been revelations who were not paying attention or, or mm -hmm looking the other way. Um, it has been an extraordinary year. I think most of us kind of hate how punishing it's been. And there are too many people who are suffering. And, and quite frankly, I don't think that we have really dealt with the level of suffering reflective of the of how deep it is at all yet. Mm -hmm. Anybody. And I, I was having um, a screaming fit during the debate yesterday because as as absurd as the president was, I kept feeling that, well, well what, is, what is your vision, um, Biden? What are you, what are you, ta what are you talking about? What, what are you going to do? You know, I just felt like, that I happen to be of the philosophy that part of why we're going through what we're going through is because the Democrats haven't done their job either over the mm. past decades. Mm. Uh, I, I'm, I'm on a tear about that as well. At, at any rate, we've both survived um, and, and we've, uh, we've been through some changes in, in what we're doing professionally, uh, right. but we're still very engaged. And very what I want to hear from you is um, how, where, where you are right now, first of all, because I don't know enough about that and, and what your focus is and, um, and how these these events this year of COVID and the social protest movements um, and and climate change. I mean, we're dealing with climate change on a whole different level than we were a year ago. How you are absorbing and dealing with addressing and and changing as a result of all of that. And 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 where because you're kind of a visionary. I've always thought of you as something of a visionary. And, and where you're thinking we're going, nobody knows. The uncertainty is rampant. Nonetheless, you start trying to, I mean, you have to kind of try to think, see through the fog and mm. see that big old freighter on the river. Mm. You know, I, I heard my first foghorn on the river about two weeks ago. And I said, oh, wow. okay, here we go. All right. Now you knew you were in the river at that point, right? <laughs> well, I, I knew that we were entering a new season. When when you yeah, start yeah. hearing foghorns on the Mississippi River, 
is it's no longer August. You know? Right. So, that's true. No, that's true. So, so uh, uh, bring me, bring, uh, take, jump in wherever in that scenario you want to that um, tells me who Timlin is today as opposed to who Timlin was post-Katrina. Wow. So you asked a lot of questions and it brought me into a full evolution. I would say I have become the 360 of who I was once was, right? Um, so as of today, I am the Director of Community Engagement and Impact for Inspire NOLA Schools. Um, Inspire NOLA is a charter management organization in the city of New Orleans where um, we are responsible for the um, the forwardness or um, I guess you would say transitioning of eight schools, um, pre-K through 12th. We have three high schools uh, and five K-8 schools. Um, my role in Inspire is putting me closer in the table of engagement for education. Uh, as you know, when I was the executive director of MPN, I've always believed that schools and um, faith-based institutions were the bedrock for the returning of neighborhoods. Um, they allowed a lot of neighborhood groups to stabilize themselves and be collective in some form because they were open, they weren't really tied to any particular political beliefs or di diagrams or however we want to say ideologies. And so um, what I learned in my role as the executive director of um, MPN is that many educational institutions really don't understand the evolution or the how to build a continuum around engagement for community to be involved. And, you know, no matter how we, um, how, no matter how much we talk about it as being something as light and simple, bureaucracy always got in the way. Um, and what this, my role at Inspire does, it is allows me to, to put my philosophy or my ideology to test, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it allows me to see really what's the complexities that happen at the school site as well as from the administrative position in order for um, educational institutions like schools to be engaged with a community or a neighborhood. So that's my role. Uh, I do a lot of community engagement. I do in, in the way that I see community engagement. I, uh, my, my title is more than just the director of community engagement, but it's really about how do we have more than just outcomes and have an impact. So that's the 360 that I, I see myself as being. Um, so before we go I, any, yeah, so before we go any further, um, let me understand that uh, a little bit more. So uh, what's, your, what's your goal in terms of your impact? So my goal is that as a city, and, and this is what kind of brings us into the COVID conversation. What we learned from Katrina is that social networks are very important. Social networks is the one thing that could 
no no amount of money could solve. No matter no amount of however um, however much money was given in the post Katrina era through philanthropy through government, it could never replace the fact that you had you knew your neighbor next door or you went to schools that your mother and your aunts went to or that whole families lived within blocks of each other. That was, that fabric was totally destroyed after Katrina. What COVID taught us immediately when schools shut down in COVID, they had to figure out food distribution and how to teach students, right? Because school still had to go on. Well, the challenge with the food distribution was kids didn't go to school in their neighborhoods. So that means if we know that we have a transportation issue in the city of New Orleans, we know we have to practice social distancing, we are actually putting the, the most vulnerable population of people who don't have transportation at risk by asking them to get on public transportation. Whereas if they lived in their neighborhood, or I'm sorry, if they went to school in their neighborhoods, they could possibly walk to, to, to receive this food, right? It was the same thing with the, um, the learning hubs a couple weeks ago. We were not providing transportation. And so because we weren't providing transportation, we really were, we were creating more barriers for our most vulnerable population for our, our, um, our families that didn't have access. And the learning hubs were to provide internet access for families who didn't have it, right? But if they can't get to it, then it wasn't beneficial. It didn't help. Therefore, therefore what my role is, is to really set, to bring into um, reality, what does this mean for our, the way that we operate, right? For us to think realistically. So I don't know if you can see it. What? Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. But on my, I'll just tell you, so on the whiteboard, it says when being educated is not enough. Mm -hmm. So if we're in an educational facility, institution, and we are producing education, educational, out, we have great educational outcomes. Inspire is one of the most high-performing schools in the city. Yet we still have a population that is impoverished. We still have uh, a, percent, uh, a very significant percentage of students who are not completing four-year degrees um, or who are not, you know, getting, eradicating the poverty that exists in our city is education enough. Now, education is known as the great equalizer, but how are we actually creating um, an ecosystem for families? How are we building support systems for families, not just for the kids? Because if we really were to take a look at that, when we, in the early days, post Katrina on how education was shaped, 
it was very colonialist. Um, it was um, in, entities coming into the city saying, we're going to save your, your poor children, your poor uneducated children. Just give us your children. And it was disconnecting children from their families. Kids were on buses all times of morning and night. They had longer distances to go. All of those different things were things that I worked on as the executive director of MPN, right? Um, trying to ensure that we create equitable outcomes. So the impact that I am hoping to have at Inspire is to actually um, maximize by minimizing. So as the ED, I was responsible for a city of New Orleans, all of New Orleans. At Inspire, I'm very focused, I'm very intentional, I'm very strategic in how I am attaching engagement or community engagement to our educational process. And so I do that through several ways. I do it through student experiences. So one example is that we started a senior academy for our seniors who are graduating. And um, one of the activities that we did, the theme last year was um, beyond my ancestors' wildest dream. That was the theme. So um, we took the, say again? Say it again, what you just said. Beyond my ancestors' wildest dreams. I am beyond my ancestors' wildest dream, which is um, a quote from the Maya Angelou poem. Um, and we took the students to the Whitney Plantation. Um, but in addition to taking them to Whitney Plantation, we also had lunch with them at Dookie Chase, which you know is very much connected to the civil rights movement of the African-American community here in New Orleans. And as a special surprise treat, we invited the white coats, the 15 white coats, which are black medical doctors, um, in various field, various areas of the medical field, who took pictures at the Whitney Plantation in front of the plantation. Um, I saw in front that. of the housing. You saw the housing um, in front of the shacks, the shanties yeah. of the plantation in their their lab coats, and we had them to come and talk to the students and engage and break bread with the students at Dookie Chase. So that's that's in a nutshell, how I'm participating in this engagement process. Another thing that I'm doing at Inspire to serve as that, um, that bridge builder uh, for community and educational institutions is I started a leadership program. Uh, before leaving MPN, one of my greatest desires and regrets was that we did not put enough emphasis in creating a pipeline for leadership. Uh, I, I regretted that because what I learned after I would say my 12th year as the executive director, I was, I've been the executive director of MPM for 14 years. And after my 12th year, I literally had to sit down and count the number of leaders, neighborhood leaders that I've lost over those 12 years. 
and my number was 22. And I'm not just, ta- I'm talking about leaders. I'm not just talking about 22 people randomly. So like Hal Brown, Reggie Lawson, Pam DeShiel, um, Victor Gordon. Like these were people who I had close relationships with that I built, that they invested in me and my leadership, but also that were on the front line for community and neighborhoods in New Orleans that were gone by the 12th year. And, and when I looked at their neighborhoods, they were, they were suffering. They, were, they, weren't, they weren't as vibrant. They, there was no one there to pick up that mantle, um, which we've seen in so many movements. And so at Inspire, um, the way that Jamar McNeely, who is my CEO, recruited me to coming here is he allowed me to start a leadership academy. So I do uh, civics trainings, not just civics, teaching civics, but also leadership development, civics trainings, um, engaging students in civic processes. So we've been involved in the census. We have a campaign right now called Project Vote and Live. So we are involved in this upcoming election. Project Vote and Live. Project Vote and Live. We have um, Project Vote and Live will um, extend beyond just the 2020 election, but become a catalyst for how young people around the city can advocate for voting rights and educating around voting and mobilizing their parents as well as their peers to vote and turn out for vote and hold elected officials accountable. So again, my degree is in education. So I was, I start, I graduated from college as a English and history teacher. And so when I say 360, when I left the school system pre-Katrina, my son is 22. I left the school system when he was three. He might've been three, yeah, three years old. So I haven't taught in 19 years, but I, I feel like this was an opportunity that God was telling me I, it was time for me to return. I had something to bring to the table that I could use um, in concert with my formal education on like, how to actually be a beacon for my community. I would like to just throw something out here that is on my mind lately. Uh, It's part of my whole kind of gestalt about the issue of students preparing to be a part of life, their cities, the world, their civic potential and so on. And I'm just gonna throw out these three words and I I don't wanna interrupt the interview with you, but um, offline, maybe we can come back to this. There are three Mm -hmm. things that I I believe very, very strongly should be taught in K-12 that are not taught. And if they were, would make a huge difference in people's lives. Number one, you won't be surprised at this at all, creativity. Mm -hmm. How 
to develop your creative capacity. Because you, you hear a lot of people say, oh, I'm not creative. Of course they are. They just don't know what it means. They don't know when they're being creative. They don't know how to develop their creative capacity. That's one. Two, business. I sure wish I had studied business in junior high school instead of how to do needlepoint, which, <laughs> okay. And then the third is psychology. And so the, the notion of people understanding what makes other people tick, the interactions between people, sort of both cognitive kinds of psychology, but also interactional. Mm -hmm. and I truly believe that if these were part of the curriculum of kids in high school, my, well, high school, but it, I think even sooner, junior high school, I think. is. is so it is, it's not called those things. So creates, if you look at some of the most, um, Here, here, here's my, here, I, 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 I'll even fold it into my conversation with you around the interview, right? So the things that you're describing are things that I've always had a part of my learning. And I went to public schools all my life, right? Um, psychology is connected to social emotional learning, right? So it is tied, it's tied to the way, not only, if you, if you are educating young people through social emotional learning experiences, then it is tied with not just about tolerance, but it's around acceptance. So you will, you will treat people the way you want to be treated and even treat them better than they treat you. Right, so you start to understand why people act the way they act, and, I, and I'll, I'll give you an example. So I, I've already told you guys, told you whoever else is listening to this, you and that I have a 22-year-old, but you also know I have a six-year-old. I can tell that that's something that's being taught at her school. That because of some of the things she'll say, she will say, "Mommy." Such and such hurt my feelings, but I'm gonna throw it in the emotional trash can. It is no longer a part of my thoughts. Interesting. She's six, right? Um, That's pretty amazing. So it is taught, it's more so the question, and here's how I'm tying it into your, your interview questions, because you asked me about like the, the current landscape. It's who is it being taught to? So my daughter goes to Louise McGee. That's not a public school. What the challenge we have is that the city of New Orleans, for example, has 49,000 public students. Public school children goes, 49,000 of New Orleans children go to public schools. Is that a priority in our public schools, whereas 90, I would say like 92% of them, of the children are black and brown. Do we think enough of black and brown children, do black lives matter enough that we want to put those three 
pillars, I would call them, Jean, into our educational system. Right? Creativity. Creativity is taught in public schools. I went to Lusher. So we know Lusher teaches it because that's how they built their model. Their model is built around creativity. But is it something that everyone feels is important to education? But you also look at Lusher, you can look at Ben Franklin, where all three of these things are taught that you just described. Is it, and then look at their demographics. Well, I, I, hear, the, I hear what you're, I hear exactly what you're saying. Do we think though that those Black Lives Matter to creativity, to business, to psychology, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That we will invest into them. And so the thing about it, the, the thing that I have taken into consideration as both a parent and as a member of this particular network that I am is that those things are important to me. And I personally take um, every opportunity that I have with young people to actually infuse that into my curriculum, into my programming, into the way that I engage them. Is it, an, is it enough? No, because it's not to scale. We not get it's not across the board. It's not a requirement. It's not something that is a part of our uh, mandate, and that's becoming a problem. But here is where what we're seeing with COVID and with Katrina almost mirror each other. Katrina was a micro scale of what COVID exposed. When we, what we saw in Katrina, it, it made New Orleans and the state of Louisiana and the country quite possibly stop and start having conversations about race in a real way. Definitely the country. I mean, I think... Uh... Right? In a way that we never had it before. We may have been, shh, 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 let's have a little race conversation or let's talk about the Black issue that's happening or... Let's keep it. I mean, we were having race conversations to the point that we were very intentional about ensuring that when we set a table, we had to have a representational number of people of color at the table based on the percentage of people that, that lived in the city, right? Like when we, when we were putting together tables, whether it was with philanthropy or we say, okay, we can't have this table all full of white folk or all full of white men or all, right? We were very intentional. And in fact, that's how we built a lot of the new leadership that we see in the city because they started coming to the table. What COVID is doing is COVID is forcing cities, individual cities, to really take a picture and a learning of how they have engaged their own minority population, black and brown or otherwise communities, and how their um, discriminatory 
racist practices, white supremacy practices have been amplified, you know, um, in ways that have been systemically harmful to the, the communities, the cities, the neighborhoods of their area. But, but let's take this forward because I'm going to, um, uh, I've already way run out over time, so I'm going to have to reconfigure how I, I may, you, you may just have to be a whole show. <laughs> but um, let's go forward. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, in a way you, you've been talking about forward, you've been talking about how you are moving forward. Um, but again, talking about seeing that freighter on the river in the fog and trying to and see where it is so you don't get run over into the river. <laughs> this, this is my warning. I know she's warning me that I have another call coming up. Um, how do you see, how do you, how do you see that freighter? And also, um, this, this, this interview is, is partly uh, for the edification of the people who listen to my show. And there are people who are really interested in hearing from folks like you. And that's why I do interviews with folks like you. Mm-hmm. Who think and then do based on their thinking. But um, it's also for a big strategic planning process that we're doing regarding the development of our cultural economy. So I have to bring this back to the cultural okay, and, and ask, because that is our, it really is our core source of strength, of, of unique resource that we have in this city uh, from the standpoint of um, our traditional culture, as well as, because everybody likes to talk about culture bearers, which nobody has yet figured out how to define, but, um, we also are innovative. We're doing constantly innovative things. You know, mm-hmm. every decade, there's a new form of music that comes out of New Orleans. And it's not coming from producers in the Bronx or Atlanta or LA. It's coming out of the streets of New Orleans. So um, share with me your perspective on the cultural component of this world that you are trying to negotiate between community and the education system? So one of the things that I think that hurts us more than anything is that we don't celebrate exploration. We we have um, this thing that gets tied into tradition versus versus allowing that free flow until we see that free flow actually can do something, you know? Um, and I'll, I'll use something from my own generation that I'm more familiar with, bounce music, right? New Orleans bounce music is different from anywhere else in the world. That was one of the ones I was thinking of. Yeah. Not to mention so, yeah. And bounce, bounce music in New Orleans is really like it's like grabbing and capturing all different types of energies and fusing it together to get this one unique sound right so while 
New York and, and well, I would say even the East Coast and the West Coast, the coast had this, this thing that they were doing around hip hop, hip hop music. New Orleans had their own thing happening. And the way that it showed up, and, and here's the, this is why I say it's my generation. Uniforms became a thing right at my senior year in high school in New Orleans, right? Kids didn't wear uniforms when I first started in school. Um, I graduated in 92 for your listening audience who want to be able to do all the mathematical adding because I didn't throw out a couple ages. Um, and when I graduated, it was my senior year. By the time my brother, who was two years younger than me, uni the uniforms when I graduated was very simple. It was a shirt and a skirt. By the time my brother graduated from high school, who was two years younger than me, Girls had started creating their own fashion styles of the uniform and crafting it to fit with whatever the latest fashions were. Because even if you're going to make me wear a uniform, I'm going to make it into shorts or I'm going to make it into a skirt or I'm going to make it into the late, whatever the latest whatever is, right? Now, add economy to that. Here's that business piece that you were talking about. The creativity is what, what the young people had. And as long as the school didn't create a policy, that's where the, the pause happens. As long as the school didn't where I have a policy about it, you could go down to, at the time, Krauss was open. You can go to Krauss and buy the fabric, find a seamstress, and sew your uniform to fit like you wanted it to fit. Businesses got a hold of that, uniform supply companies, and they started to create and mimic the uniforms. School adults, I guess you would say administrators and business folks got together and they crafted policies where kids could own, families could only buy the uniforms from those businesses. Mm -hmm. So there was an economy that was created wow. through the imagination and the creativity of young people, yes. yet they did not benefit from. And that, can ha that has happened so many times to Black and Brown communities. We see it with the Indians, the Mardi Gras um, Indians. I know there's a new, more politically correct name for it. I think they call it the Mardi Gras Mask Indians. They call it now. I, I, I know it's something different. I'm calling it what I'm familiar with. We saw it happen with the brass bands. So we see it happening all the time, but who is it happening to? And the thing that who is from it and who is allowed to own it and wow what but what i'm what i'm getting at gene and this here's the key point the idea of creating policy which is something that we don't focus on so even in your three pillars the what what has always got black and brown communities is the law the policy, the city charter, like those are the things
things that always stump us up. Creativity is not a problem. There's not one thing in America that Black folks didn't create. Food, music, dance, style, all of it, fashion. They created it. So when you talk about business, business is a piece of it. They could create business, but Elton Sterling was created because he was killed because he had a business going on. It wasn't a legal business. But he had a business. And so it is the, 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 the legalities, it is the policies, it is our ability to shape laws that are beneficial and mutual to our communities that always hinders in the cultural economy. Even in the cultural economy. Oh, look at my boyfriend behind <laughs> you. <laughs> so, you know, I... Even when I sat on Cannell's board, that was always my thing about being there. It was not just about being a part of that conversation, but my Black face needed to understand, like, how do we create the policies that can benefit Black and Brown communities? Because they don't have access to um, copyright lawyers, right? Um, there, it's very few times that they have access to marketing or, you know, even when I worked in Broadmoor as the ED, one of the first things I tried to get the city to think about with the green dot that um, LaToya put in place in the Keller Library and helped the library to purchase all of the, the furnishings through a Rockefeller grant is give the, the neighborhood businesses, those cottage businesses, an opportunity to have brick and mortar, to sell out of their space. Because those are some, when we talk about generational wealth, that's the kind of stuff that happened. Again, when I see like Jackson goes to, to um, McGee, one of the things that I learned is that grandparents pay for this, a lot of those kids to go to school not the parents, because they want their children to build their wealth. And to, well, my parents can't do that. So, you know, those, kind of, those are the kind of examples on like how, do, how does the creative industry, the cultural economy, has to start becoming a benefit for communities of color, for them to, to, to buy into. I, I think that they are fully engaged in it, absolutely. They are a part of the architectural framework of the cultural economy, but are they benefiting from it? Are they actually getting or um, gaining more than they are Even distributing? Even more fundamentally, do they even have an understanding of the value? Because this is something I think is, is an issue of, of their, their creativity and what they can do with it. That's part of what we address um, in my nonprofit. Uh, Chillin, we are... Um, <laughs> We're out of time. 
Well, here's the thing. I mean, I normally have two to three people in a show and, and you are the show. Uh, I've done that before. And, and when somebody has as much to say as you, I have no problem with it. Um, but we are definitely going to pretty soon run out. And I still want to make sure that we have gone forward as much as we can in this conversation. Is there anything that you want to um, add to this conversation about uh, basically what you just described? This is a, this is a big job to try to figure out how to um, help students um, and, and people in the community in black and brown in particular, um, understand the value of their creativity and how to turn that into business opportunities and how not to uh, wind up losing their um, designs to some arbitrary companies that benefit from it when they don't. What, what well, do you think about how to move forward? To a well, company? one of the things that I think is that we have to start actually, this is, the free market is even more free with technology, right? Their kids are now able to produce beats and post them on social media. You can go to YouTube and create your own television show. I mean, look at you right now. You're doing a Zoom and have a radio show. You can do podcasts. All of those things happen. What we have to start engaging or, or actually maximizing on is ensuring that the institutions that we invest in, whether it's our schools or our, you know, churches or our government, whatever those institutions are, that they carry the same or mutual values around creativity that we have. Um, nonprofit institutions such as a Nord, for example. Nord Absolutely. That's a that's a that is a governmental entity. So yeah. Nord is a quasi-governmental entity. And Nord has a they have a responsibility to the people. Now, how do the people actually and so that's what I do at Inspire. I am teaching students how you get what you want from your government. Because that's another lever that, you know, we live in the South, Gene. And I'm, I mean, I know you got to go. We have trained our children to be so submissive that when they become adults, they don't have a voice. They lose their voice. We silence them. And so there's a difference between respect and oppression. It looks very different. I can be respectful to you and not bow down to everything you say. And I'm not being insubordinate. I'm just having a thought. I can have free thought and still be respectful. And I don't think that we've created that space. And so that also hinders creativity. And, and I can't think of a city where figuring this out and figuring out how to execute it, how to fund it, how to seed it, how to grow it is more important than the city of New Orleans. Oh, we absolutely. New Orleans is, is the creator. We are the birth and creator of uh, everything, everything. We have, we have the creativity, we have the, the makings, um, but we also have you know, a level of poverty that is crushing. And um, we have a way 
out through our creativity, something I, as you know, believe very deeply in. Um, Tim Lynn, I can't think of a single conversation I've ever had with you in life that I do not value hugely and appreciate enormously. Well, thank you for calling me. Your time and, and you were willing to deal with it at the level that you deal things with um, uh, seriously, thoughtfully, and um, transactionally, how can you make it move forward? Um, so uh, yeah, you're gonna be the show. <laughs> that's, that's just uh, what happened this time. Please stay in touch. No, absolutely, I'm still here. I'm, I am a New Orleanian for life. I'm a lifer. Okay, uh, I am too, um, uh, what I have left of it, but that's, we'll see, I'm, I'm still, uh, uh, rocking and rolling, so we'll we'll go forward. And um, thank you for everything you do. And um, yeah, I'm going to be uh, looking for you again soon. If Please you do anytime. I love being. I love talking to you. You know that. Thanks again. Thank you, Timlin Sam's, and um, you keep on keeping on, as they say. Absolutely. Thank you have you. a great day. Bye bye. So, as you see, Timelin is such a good example of the brain's creativity and commitment that have been a part of our city as it has evolved since Katrina. You know, I don't usually talk directly to you all. I am so curious about my guests, I focus on them. But today, I wanted to share some thoughts with you. First, of course, vote, vote, vote. Now, disasters have a way of spurring community and cultural renewal. One of the most powerful examples is the development of the contemporary American art scene in Lower Manhattan after World War II when an infusion of immigrants from the Nazi era in Europe came. Here in New Orleans, Katrina opened the eyes of Americans and internationals to the newer forms of our culture. Once thought of as the heart of Dixieland music, Katrina called attention to the full landscape of our cultural legacy our authenticity, originality, and innovation. Jazz Fest began the process really in 1970, putting our musical, culinary, and crafts menu in plain sight. But Katrina revealed our water-soaked neighborhoods with a spectacular variety of architecture, rich community engagement, and endless green, wind-whipped but slowly reviving gardens from a rose bush in front of a shotgun house to some of America's largest parks filled with microcosms of Louisiana's unique natural landscape. Even the secrets of our fishing territories became more visible, not just as nurseries for shrimp and other seafood, but waterfront living for four century old fishing communities with Native American roots, probably a lot older than that. Now we are living through yet another disastrous year, suffering from a pandemic that has hit our hospitality dominant economy harder than many other cities, our long unclosed wounds from our early history of slavery and the extremes of poverty and pollution laced communities with the extreme impact from the pandemic. Yet once again, we are experiencing a cultural revival that will yield yet another new era in our constantly evolving culture. A keystone has been the tearing down of silos that kept our cultural community from working together to better advance the lives of our culture bearers, artists, and producers. 
Arts activists have made this happen on their own by convening creative response Zoom meetings bi-weekly organized by Antenna Galleries leaders Bob Steed and Shana Griffin. The calls have been reaching dozens of participants, generating homegrown initiatives to help struggling artists who have lost hospitality jobs, galleries, and theaters to show their work to the public, even education jobs. Now these groups are reaching deeper to address issues of equity, gender, and race. Several groups are looking at how better to support and invest in individual artists, arts organizations, and the broad range of creative activity called Creative Industries. The Creative Alliance of New Orleans, Cano, my home base, is working with a growing coalition, the Creative Industries Breakthrough Coalition, CIBC, to develop a very comprehensive strategic plan for better recognizing the scope, impact, and potential of our creative industries and ways to make sure our culture bearers, artists, and producers benefit from their creative work. The city of New Orleans is working to develop a better cultural funding mechanism and look to help creatives hard hit by the pandemic. Gino Wink has developed an initiative to address the need for better protection of the intellectual property of musicians. A newly forming alliance of arts organizations is also looking to understand all these initiatives and weigh in on the best way to make sure individual artists benefit. The Arts Council of New Orleans is also looking to redefine its leadership role in these pursuits. One way to learn more about these initiatives and to sign is to sign up for the Crosstown Conversations newsletter, News. You can do so by sending your email to us at crosstownconvo at gmail.com. That's crosstownconvo. C-R-O-S-S-T-O-W-N-C-O-N-V-O at gmail.com. If you enjoy this show, you're going to love the newsletter. I also just wanted to call your attention to another way of looking at how we can regenerate cultural programs, programming safely by utilizing green spaces scattered throughout the city, whether small pocket parks or our huge park treasures, City Park, Audubon Park, and various wetland parks surrounding our city. We need to promote smaller events with smaller performances, fees to help the artists, and a way to telegraph that the city is open for residents and visitors alike. One such event is coming up in a small park in the heart of the city's business district called Legacy Park at 730 Verone Street, just across from Rouse's Market. Next Saturday, from noon until four, Cano and the Downtown Development District are presenting a fall event called Blooms and Beats with an interactive drum circle led by the famous Luther Gray, fall plant giveaways and talks and art making for kids. It is a perfect example of one of our small, sweet green spaces in an unexpected location and a perfect way to take a break from our Zooming world. I'll be there and happy to introduce you to our musicians, gardeners and artists. I hope to see you there and hope you will sign up for our newsletters so you can see all the special sections of news, cultural activities, environmental, urban, and occasional political dialogue and cartoons. So that's it for one of our election specials. We will be running through election day, except please, um, early voting starts imminently. You must get out there and vote. 
better to do it during the early voting than any other time. But whatever works for you, just use it. This is Jean Nathan, your host for Crosstown Conversations on WBOK, 1230 AM, what everyone is talking about.